0: I want to invite you to join with me this morning turning in your bibles to Luke chapter 14 Luke chapter 14 and our scripture reading this morning is going to be verses 25 through 33 I want to take just a moment to greet all of those who have joined us via the internet welcome We pray that this will be a blessed time for you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25, this is God's word. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May he work today to write its truths on our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to you this morning, we're very mindful of this great need that we have. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to come and lead us and guide us into the truth. We pray that the words that you have given to us and preserved for us, that you will make them alive to us and that you will open our eyes and ears and hearts and be strengthened and renewed by the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray today for those who are in great need. We pray, Father, for your great work in our land How we pray that you might send the spirit of revival over America. We've fallen so far away. Father, we are indeed guilty of turning our backs on you. We're thankful for the hope of the gospel. It's our only hope. And how we pray that you would work in such a way to bring about a great revival, a great reformation in our country. We pray, Lord, that you may raise up gospel preachers and gospel preaching churches. How we pray, Lord, that you would be with those and strengthen those who are not able to be here with us today. We are thankful for the advances that are made for those who have been quarantining and we anxiously look forward to their return to us soon we pray lord for your blessing upon those who may be out today due to illness continue to pray for our dear sister carlene sykes how we pray lord for your blessing upon her we we pray today father for matthew Nallen, lord others in our congregation who may be hurting uh, physically or emotionally or spiritually how we pray that you might be merciful and strengthen hearts and strengthen bodies. We pray, Lord, for uh, brothers and sisters across the world who may be suffering. We are especially mindful today of those in Myanmar and uh, the great travesty that is taking place there. Father, we pray for uh, your blessing upon our Christian brothers and sisters there. We pray for their witness and we, we pray for peace. How we pray, Lord, that you might act in such a great way to turn this situation around. We pray today, Father, for our missionaries who have taken the good news of the gospel to places like Myanmar and Indonesia and China and Brazil and Mexico. Lord, places that are on our hearts today where there are lost Now we pray that you would strengthen our missionaries and bless them with words of hope. And Lord, bless them with people who have ears to hear and hearts, Lord, that are open to the gospel and that there might be a great harvest of souls. Lord, again, we pray that you bless this time today. We pray for the preaching of your word. May you speak into our hearts now and we join together and pray as our Lord Jesus taught us. If you've been reading the Bible for very long, you understand that it is a very interesting and amazing book. It comes to us with lots of different genres, different styles. There are stories, very intriguing and beautiful stories, and there is poetry and wisdom, uh, all different kinds of genres of literature in God's Word. Some of it's even humorous. I mean, who, who would not read the story of Balaam and the donkey and not find that funny? I mean, that's funny. But really, all of God's word should be taken seriously. I think we all would agree and understand that, but there are some parts of it that really just grab us and you know what I mean, because sometimes those of you who are husbands will go to your wives and say, we need to talk. Not necessarily anything wrong, but it's just, okay, hey, no joking around. we we, we got to talk about something serious. Maybe the wife does this. Maybe the husband and wife gets together and gets the kids and says, hey, everybody needs to come to the table. Doesn't mean anybody's in trouble. Maybe they are, Mm -hmm. but it just typically means that okay, this is a serious conversation. Okay, we we kind of are pretty much lighthearted most of the time, but every once in a while we've got to stop and say, okay, let's get really serious here for just a moment. And that's what I thought of when I read this text. This is this is not like reading a, a Bible story, I mean, this is really kind of in our face, isn't it? I mean, it's it grabs our attention. And I pray that the words of our Lord Jesus here do grab your attention today. It's a it's a very serious matter and to be quite honest, it's a text that I really don't want to preach on. I mean, this is this is Jesus as, as bold as it gets. But I can't stress enough how vital it is that we listen to our Lord and take these words to heart. It's a matter of where we'll spend eternity. I mean, if that's not serious enough for us, I don't know how to get more serious than that. I want to ask a couple of questions as we begin this morning. Do you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? And then second, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Now, if your answer is no to the second question, most likely it's no to the first question. And I think as we go through this text, we'll see why this is so vitally important. May the Lord work in our hearts today so that everyone within the sound of my voice may give a hearty answer yes to both of these questions. I want to begin first by noting in our text the journey interrupted, the journey interrupted as we begin looking here at these verses, uh, I want us to consider a couple of points of context. First, this event in which Jesus addresses the crowd here takes place on a journey. It is what I call the Jerusalem March. Luke 9.51 tells us that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, uh, that is, Jesus is to, to be taken up in the mission for which he came into the world. And like the suffering servant of Isaiah 50, verse 9, a verse that says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint. The Lord Jesus Christ does this. He will not be deterred. He will not be pulled aside he is on a mission he is on a march and nothing will stop him from doing what he came into the world to do now second we notice that at this point jesus is constantly surrounded by a crowd this crowd will later in luke's gospel he he records for us what we call the triumphal entry And you remember there that Jesus comes into Jerusalem with shouts from this crowd who are shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those are the shouts one day, but not too many days later, those shouts change, don't they? Shouts of, Crucify! Crucify him! What happened to that crowd? Verse 25 shows us that a brief interruption to the march has taken place. It says, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, a great crowd. Now, why such a great crowd? Well, earlier Luke has been recording all the things that Jesus had been doing, healing people, casting out demons, and probably uh, some of these came for that. Maybe they came to be healed, to be freed from demon possession. Maybe they just came to see that. Luke also records that there were some who just came to see these wonderful things that Jesus was doing, these miracles. But how many had come to Jesus and had forsaken everything to come and follow him? To come and serve him. Picture, if you will, Jesus on some dusty road outside of Jerusalem, making his way toward the city. And suddenly he stops and turns around and begins speaking to this crowd, this crowd that may have been thousands. They're following, but are they disciples? You know, you might be following, but you might not be a disciple. It's easy to just kind of blend in with the crowd and do what the crowd is doing and do church stuff, right? Show up. Hang out with everybody. Eat lunch. Come to the worship services and sing and and listen to the sermon and uh, you, you could be doing all of those things and more and not be a disciple. So Jesus stops to speak and explain what it means, what it's going to cost to follow him. And so that's our, our next point here. After the, the journey is interrupted, we see the call Explained. The call to discipleship, that is. Now, there's a couple of aspects about this call that I want us to notice. And the first is that it is controversial. It's a controversial call. Now, what do I mean? Well, if you look again at verse 26, Jesus is speaking and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and so on, let's stop right there. We may be shocked to hear these words coming from Jesus, right? I mean, this is, I mean, we may do a double take. And I'm sure some in that crowd that day were stunned to hear Jesus say such a thing as this. I mean, what's Jesus doing here? Is he calling us to to hate our family? Well, to make sense of this, controversy, we have to understand that this original word here in the Greek has a a range of meanings. Usually when we use the word hate, uh, it typically has one meaning, right? But not necessarily in Jesus's day. It could mean detest, which is what we typically use it for. Or it could also mean uh, disfavor or disregard. Now, I'll tell you something about me. A lot of you know this. I hate you ready cucumbers (laughs) I hate them I love y'all and if I come to your house and you put something in front of me I know I'm supposed to eat what's put in front of me I'm not going to eat them I'm not now that doesn't mean I wish they didn't exist I wish that all cucumbers all over the world would be gathered up and burned in a pile and then never planted again. I don't, I don't hate them that way. Stacy likes them great. I like to see her enjoy them. That's great. If you like them, good. Someone might say, uh, I hate Ford or I hate Chevy. I don't think those people mean I wish Ford didn't exist or I wish Chevy didn't exist. What do we mean? This is my preference. I like this one. I don't like that one. So that's what this word means, to to favor something, uh, to disregard something else. And that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, I mean, after all, Jesus is the one who told us that we have to love one another. We even have to love our enemies. So his words make no sense if we interpret it the way we typically use the word hate, right? We recognize the the priority and preference of something much better. This call to discipleship by Jesus is controversial, but second, it is a call with a deep extent. Let's consider here for a moment the extent of the call, and I want to pause and ask this question. To what extent are you willing to follow Jesus? The call here is to be a disciple, and I want you to notice how Jesus does this. It's it's given in a way to show how it is negated. Three times Jesus explains a different aspect of this call, uh, a requirement which if not met, Jesus says at the end of verse 26, 27, and 33, the person cannot be his disciple. So, to what extent are you willing to go? Have you met these conditions? Well, let's stop and ask another kind of basic question. What is a disciple? What, is, what does this mean? Well, this is a term we don't really use a lot anymore. When you hear that word, you probably think of something from the Bible, right? In Jesus' day, being a disciple meant a lot of things. It meant a follower, not really in a literal sense as these people are doing here, but a follower in the sense of a, a student. And not just a student, but someone who had made a, a, a loyal claim to someone else. Someone who Uh, listened to their teachings. They they sat at their feet and listened to them teach and they learned and they took in everything and then they applied those things and and changed their life based on what the teacher or or rabbi was saying. He would live like the teacher. He would make the, the life choices the way the teacher did. It was a call to devotion and loyalty. However, what Jesus is presenting here as a teacher explaining discipleship to his would-be followers is much more radical than anything any teacher in his day would have said. No teacher would have said that you had to, to disavow your family to follow them. Yes, you had to Sacrifice your time, you had to change the way you lived, to, to follow that teacher and be like him. But Jesus says that in order to be His disciple, you must hate, again, not detest, but, but disavow, disregard your father and mother and wife, children and brothers and sisters. What is He? What does he mean here? I mean, what's Jesus saying? Well, well, who are the people in this list? For most of us, these are the ones closest to us, aren't they? Now, I realize that uh, sometimes relationships break down. And maybe we aren't as close to these uh, some of these as we wish we were or maybe as we had been at some point in the past. But um, maybe you've gotten cold in a relationship with a father or a mother but but think about a child for a child father and mother is everything right i mean that's their world and who of us those of us who have children who of us wouldn't do anything for our kids right i mean we would we would do anything for our kids And siblings, brothers and sisters, sometimes these are not just siblings, but in many cases, these are our best and dearest friends. So these are the ones who are closest to us. And Jesus says, your commitment to me must be such that you are willing to turn away from all of these. The ones you love the most, those to whom you are the closest. That's That's a strong word, isn't it? Not to be taken lightly. But that's not all. The extent of the call stretches even farther, if you will. Look in verse 27. Jesus continues and says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this idea of discipleship has kind of been lost a little bit uh, to us over the centuries, but... But the idea of the cross hasn't been, has it? We know what this is. This was part of the Roman system of of justice. It was a form of punishment for the severest of criminals. It was public. It was humiliation. It was suffering. Torture. Often death, not always. Sometimes people would hang and they'd let them hang for a little little while and then take them down and they'd recover. But it often meant death. Notice about this verse that Jesus says that his disciples must bear his own cross. That is, this, this call is for everyone But everyone has to bear their own cross. I can't bear yours and you can't bear mine. You can't bear somebody else's. They can't bear yours. Now this does not conflict with the idea of us bearing one another's burdens. We do that in the body of Christ. When we see someone hurting, someone struggling, we come alongside that brother or sister and and we, we help carry that load if we can. But the cross... That symbol of of shame and punishment and persecution and suffering and humiliation. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, my follower, you must bear your own. Or what? You cannot be his disciple. It involves the willingness to disavow our families, those closest to us, uh, to, to take up that symbol of shame and punishment and persecution and suffering. And even, Jesus says, yes, and even his own life. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Everybody understands comprehensive, don't you? That's, that's everything. So is this you? We move on from the the call explained to now the call illustrated. We have this, this journey interrupted and the call. Explained, and now I want us to see the call illustrated. In verses 28 through 32, uh, Jesus gives two illustrations to help explain what he means here in this call to discipleship. Now, uh, the first illustration could relate to anyone in the crowd who might build a tower. Uh, We might be thrown off here by this because this is something we typically don't do today, right? Has anybody built a tower lately? No, nobody has, right? The reference here is to a watchtower that someone would put in the middle of their vineyard or their property. Uh, If you had uh, vines or, or trees, whatever, you could build something so that somebody could climb up to the top and watch and make sure that nobody came in and took some of your, uh, whatever it is you were growing. And it seems that this must have been a substantial structure because you notice here that Jesus mentions that it has a foundation which would have been made in their day of large stones. So uh, if you think of like this little bitty uh, just stick thing that's kind of thrown up quickly, no, Jesus is talking about a substantial structure. The second illustration, given in verse 31, doesn't relate so much to the followers per se, but to a king who must decide whether to go to war or not. Now, I want you to notice that in these illustrations, in both of them, Jesus begins by asking a rhetorical question. What does that mean? Well, we know what the answer is, right? It's understood. The understood answer in both illustrations is yes. If you're desiring to build a tower, you don't first uh, consider. uh, Don't you first consider if you have enough money to do it? If a king is about to go off to war against another king, he doesn't just go, does he? Doesn't he first assess the situation and say, okay, do we have what we need? Do we have the resources to win? Otherwise, his army could get annihilated. But if he knows he's outnumbered, and in the case of the illustration, uh, he's outnumbered two to one, what would he do? Okay, let's make peace. This situation doesn't call for war. It calls for peace. (laughs) So both of these begin with a rhetorical question. And then there's another similarity. I don't know if you caught this or not, but I want you to see that in both illustrations, Jesus points out that the person sits down. Did you see that? Verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? And then drop down to verse 31, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? Now, isn't that interesting? That in both of these illustrations, Jesus says, Okay, now, if you're in the first one or the second one whatever, these hypotheticals, First, you sit down. Now, we might hear that and think, well, that, that kind of contradicts what Jesus typically says about being a disciple, right? Remember that passage that we read earlier, our, our congregational reading? Or maybe we think of this parable that comes uh, previously in this chapter, Jesus, telling this parable of this master who gave a great feast. And then he sends out the servant to go get all of those who have been invited. And what happens? Do you remember? They all send back excuses. Uh, hey, I just bought a piece of property and I need to go look at it. Uh, I bought five yoga oxen. and I need to go look at them. I got married uh, and uh, I just can't. So, so And they all, please have me excused. And we, we might sense in that the immediacy of a response. But what we need to understand here is that in those responses, those are people who don't want to come. Those aren't people who say, give me more time. Those are people who are saying, I, I'm too busy. I can't come. And you remember how the master of the feast responded He got angry. He invited others. And then at the end of that parable, uh, he says, you tell those others that they aren't coming now. They will never be allowed to come to my feast. Well, what we need to understand here is that there is uh, some tension and there is some immediacy of the call, but it doesn't necessarily mean drop everything. Jesus, remember, is addressing a large crowd, maybe thousands. Luke 12, 1 says that many thousands had gathered around him, and they have not considered what it means to follow Jesus. You know how crowds are. Crowds just gather, right? How many of you have ever seen a crowd and just went and joined the crowd? You didn't even know why they were gathered. What's going on? Suddenly, you're part of the crowd. What are you doing? I don't know. I just saw a crowd. I came over. To be his disciple, there cannot be excuses, but there must be accounting of the cost. And it doesn't take a lot of time, does it? I mean, think about it. If you're building a tower in this illustration here that That Jesus is giving how long does it take to determine if you've got the money to build the tower maybe you hire somebody out hey I want to build a tower okay how big Uh, like this all right how tall like this okay it's gonna be about this much in labor and this much in material and you have your answer but at least you found out before you started building or in the case of the king let's go we're going to war hold on a second now, the king knows how many guys he has. How many do they have? And You've got spies and scouts and reconnaissance and so on and so forth. And, oh, they've got twice as many as us. Uh, well, maybe that's not a, not a good idea. But the point is that it doesn't take very long. Now, let's consider what happens if someone doesn't count the cost. Well, in the first case... What have you got? Well, this person jumped in and started building a tower and they make it, I don't know, halfway through. You've got something. It's not finished. Uh, None of us ever halfway do things here, I know. None of us have ever started a project and only gotten halfway through, I know. But If you've done that, You may know what I'm talking about. You have a neighbor or a friend or whatever come over and say, "What do you got?" Well, that's gonna be a. But this person has started a rather substantial structure, and it's halfway built. And everybody comes by and they say, "Oh, what? Oh, uh, Joe, yeah, he ran out of money. Oh, what a silly guy." All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And in the second case, Jesus reverses the situation and rather have the king fight and get annihilated and be mocked, he knows he'll lose. And so what does he do? He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now let me ask this question. Why do you think Jesus gave these two illustrations? He could have illustrated this any number of ways, right? Well, he doesn't tell us. Sometimes Jesus will tell, tell a, a parable and, and then they come to him and say, Lord, what did that mean? We didn't know. Okay, I'll tell you what it means. Some of those folks out there are not going to know, but but I'll tell you. Well, he doesn't really tell us. And I thought about this a good bit and and I had my ideas confirmed by uh, one of the scholars that I read. Daryl Bach suggests this. The first illustration pictures coming to Jesus. The second deals with following after him. First, consider what discipleship will cost. Second, consider what refusing the more powerful one will mean. Can you enter Battle against him, in short, consider the cost of entry and the benefits of allying with the one who carries the power. I think those are some interesting thoughts, aren't they? And if you just think about that second situation, Jesus, if, if uh, Dr. Bach is right here, and I, I think he may be, he's saying, look, if you don't come on my side, you're on the wrong side. You're going to lose. <laughs> The right thing to do is to come and be on my side and make peace and just surrender. I say, I'll follow you. I'm, I'm on your team now. We're, we're part of the same team. Well, that brings us to one final consideration today. The interruption of the journey, the call explained, the call illustrated, and now finally the conclusion of the call the conclusion of the call the last verse here in our text verse 33 jesus concludes with a summary statement he says this so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple now there's a couple of things that i think we need to note about this verse and first i want you to notice the universality of it it's for everyone Jesus is looking at this crowd of perhaps thousands and says, So therefore, any one of you. He's not pointing to specific ones. This is for anyone and everyone. This is not some special higher calling for a few. We say this because someone may Decide that they are fine with being a Christian, but not a disciple. No, 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 no. That's, that's for the super spiritual people. I'm just kind of your typical run-of-the-mill Christian. Don't pay any attention to me, okay? I'm just, a, I'm just kind of a regular Christian. I'm not that kind of Christian, okay? That's way too serious, And what we have here is some people have created a new category, an artificial category. You got your Christians, then you got your disciples. (laughs) Maybe I'll be there one day, not right now. But this is not what Jesus is doing, and it's easily disproven first by Scripture. We're looking at a passage here in Luke's Gospel. Dr. Luke wrote another book, the book of Acts. And this is what he says in Acts 11:26. 26. For a whole year they, that is Paul and Barnabas, met with the church in Antioch and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And guess what? Evidently the name stuck. Because when we go over a few more chapters in Acts 26, 28, Paul is testifying there before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa says this, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So these are in different categories. This isn't like super Christian and kind of so-so Christian. One category, followers of Jesus, no special class, Christians are disciples and disciples are Christians. And then second, I wanted you to to hear to note Jesus' emphasis on renouncing possessions. Renouncing possessions. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has. Now previously Jesus had mentioned hating, that is, uh, disavowing, a willingness to, to separate and, and, and put your family aside for his sake. And he, he has talked about taking up your cross. And now he adds to that renouncing of all that he has. And I think the phrase clearly speaks of possessions. You'll probably remember uh, this story. It actually comes later in Luke's gospel, Luke 18, of, of Jesus speaking to this one who has come to him and says, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You remember how that conversation went? What did Jesus say? Uh, You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, on and on and on. And basically what Jesus does there is he gives him the second half of the law. But he leaves one out. And that man responded, all of these I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus says, okay, you've only got one more thing to do. Go sell everything you have and distribute it to the poor and then come and follow me. And what did the guy do? You remember? He went away sad because he was extremely rich. Jesus had left out that commandment, do not covet. And what we find is that this man was guilty of it. Oh, I've done all those other terrible things. We always put that one kind of in its own little, you know. Most likely, we break that one every day. What is coveting? Wanting. Who else doesn't want? Something we don't have. (laughs) Back here in Luke 14, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't turn to the crowd and instruct all of them. Now everyone go and sell everything you have. Rather what Jesus demands, demands is a willingness to renounce all your possessions. The question is this. Do you own stuff or does stuff own you? Some of us are really proud of our stuff. We like our stuff, don't we? (laughs) And it's not just possessions. It's not just stuff. I think when Jesus says you have to renounce all that you have, I think that could be anything. Our jobs. Jobs are important, but are they more important than Jesus? our goals and ambitions and hobbies and recreation and whatever it is that we're spending so much time on. I mean, think about the way we spend our time. What do you give your time to most? That's something that you could be worshiping. You need to, to, to be willing to renounce. Maybe you do need to renounce. Do we have anything that we'd not give up? Christ, anything? When we put all this together, I think what people do, and I've done this, I've heard a lot of other people, and and this is what we do: we've got all these things that are going on in our life. Okay, we got these responsibilities and these priorities, and so what we do is we make a list. Maybe not literally, but some people have done it literally, and we make this list. And if you're a guy like me, this is what you do. Okay. I'm a husband, so I've got my wife, Then I've got my kids, and then maybe I've got some other family. Maybe there's some family that's dependent on me. I don't know. Maybe mom and dad are on that list or, or siblings or something like that. And then job is usually up there because we need income. Job is important, right? We've got job on there. And then church, because we're Christians, And then these these other things are our hobbies and our recreation or whatever it is, the projects that we have going on around the house, and on and on and on. And so we've got all these things on our list, but we know as good Christians what goes at the top of that list? Jesus. And this is what I think Jesus is saying. That stuff goes on one list, and you make another list. And you put me and nothing else on that list. Jesus is on his own list. He's not competing with these other things. He's the God of heaven, the creator of everything, who demands and deserves our complete and unadulterated devotion. Does he not? All those things on that list are important. Jesus is not calling us all here today to walk away from family, sell all your stuff, go out there and and ensure that you're persecuted, do whatever you got to do to be a martyr. He's not saying that. But he is asking If you're going to come and follow me, have you considered the cost? What if it did cost you all of that stuff? Are you willing to still follow? Is there any line that we have drawn and said, Jesus, all of that, but no more. And if we're going to be his disciples, there cannot be. There can't be anything. Look, as believers, it's all his anyway, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, what are you going to take with you? If you got a lot of stuff, you're not taking that stuff with you. You're not taking your kids with you. Guess what? In heaven, these relationships change. You're not taking your wife with you. She'll be there if she's a believer and you'll be there, but it's going to be different. It's going to be better. If You can imagine that. But all of these things, this this list, whatever it is, ever how long it is, we have to say, here, Jesus, nothing compares to you. Nothing comes before you. You have my complete devotion. What can I do? How can I serve you? I belong to you. You've got your own list. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray for your help today to take to heart these words. How we pray that you would so work in our hearts. How we need an outpouring of your grace because we cannot answer this call in and of ourselves. We need your help. Father, first I pray that you would work in our hearts to change our desires that if we have not put you on a list all by yourself, that we would do that. That we would recognize that there's nothing in this world that compares to knowing you and trusting you and following you and listening to you and obeying you. And Lord, second, we pray that you would give us the strength to be able to live out this call as your followers, whatever it may cost us. We know that it will be costly. And so we come together today, Father, as your church, to disavow everything else for your sake. We come today to express express our complete love and devotion to you above all else. We thank you for your grace and mercy and love. We thank you for the hope of the gospel, the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's all join together.